0: The city has been around since 1718. It was a small, narrow landmass that was a cultural melting pot with the local Native American tribes, Mississippi on one side and swamps on the other, but as the French realized its potential, it kicked the local tribes out and drained the swamps, giving it room to grow. Today, it is alive with music practically steeping from the historical buildings along the French Quarter. The authentic Creole cuisine can be found everywhere thanks to its strong, unique African, Caribbean, French, Spanish cultural background. Its history, strength, resilience, the imagery, the voodoo, the vampires, and the haunts. Mm. There is no place in the world like America's New Orleans. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Today's episode was suggested by Jessamine Little. Thanks, Jessamine, for helping to get our second season off to a spooky start. So, at her request, and without further ado, we dive deep into the secret and not-so-secret ghosts that haunt the Big Easy. The best way to find ghosts is to, I don't know, start at a cemetery. You can be pretty sure that a few of its residents are not happy about being there or they believe their work on top, hasn't been completed. And the cemeteries of New Orleans don't disappoint. The former cemetery of St. Peter's, which was established just inside where the French Quarter is today, attempted the ritual of what we are most familiar with as far as cemeteries goes, rows and rows of planted bodies marked with stones jutting up from the ground inscribed with deceased information. However, Being at, or sometimes even below, sea level, this proved to be an unfortunate choice. It wasn't long that the tombstones would start to rise up and topple over, and with a good flooding, which happened often, in the 1700s, bloated, waterlogged corpses would be discovered floating down the streets. Therefore, the cemeteries in this haunted city can all be found above ground, almost as a city of its own. Tombs and mausoleums made from marble, granite, brick, or whitewashed stone are what replaced the graveyards found in other places. There are at least 42 of these historic cities of the dead where you can see examples of simple vaults to the expensive, grandiose family tombs. But the one everyone says is the most haunted would be that of the largest, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Seems fitting to start at number one. This is the oldest of the above-ground graveyards and was established in 1789 by the Spanish. Even though it only takes up one square block, it is the resting place of thousands, including notables such as Homer Plessy from the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court decision of civil rights, the first African-American mayor of the city, Ernest Moriel, Alexander Dimitri and his family's mausoleum can be found here. He was an author and educator, being the first of mixed race to become the superintendent of public education. And even actor Nicholas Cage has purchased his pyramid tomb to rest in when the time comes. Even though many specters are seen floating about and orbs are a common occurrence, visitors seem more interested in that of the simple stucco-covered brick tomb of Marie Laveau. Marie Laveau rose above her ranks of mixed race through her use of voodoo. Her version of voodoo comes from her varied background mixed with Catholicism. After her marriage and giving birth to 15 children in rapid succession, she quit her job as a hairstylist, a very prominent hairstylist, to focus on her mysterious craft. The majority of people believed the ancient African practice of voodoo was summoning the evil and dark spirits to do their bidding, casting spells, and cursing enemies with deadly hexes. However, because of Laveau's addition of holy water, saints, and Christian prayer, she was able to entice more upper-class clientele and those who believed in Christianity. As in both Christianity and the practice of voodoo, spirits can be summoned and those spirits may be benevolent, tricksters, or evil. She was believed to use her great powers to help those in need of healing, of pain, and injustice. At her deathbed in 1881, she is said to have died with a smile on her face. She is remembered not as a woman who practiced dark magic, but as one of the kindest women who ever lived. She was and is considered the Queen of Voodoo in Louisiana, and her tomb is a constant reminder that there are those who believe that her powers still exist. Her tomb is covered with X's, which are wishes that visitors requested that she fulfill. Others leave gifts, perhaps in addition to their wishes. Sometimes they will offer coins, beans, bones, flowers, amulets, and specific herb-filled bags signifying requests for Laveau's assistance or goodwill. Locals believe that she comes back every year on St. John's Eve to lead her faithful flock in voodoo worship, sometimes seen at the cemetery and other times at her home and even walking the streets after dark. She is one of the most active ghosts in the French Quarter and is commonly recognized by the knotted handkerchief she wears around her neck or by glimpses of her pet snake that she named Zombie. I've mentioned in another episode, I believe it was 51, it talks about the old city jail in Charleston, South Carolina. And one of the stories included in that was about how difficult it was to find someone to uphold the laws of the city. Now, I'm not referring to the police or the military, but the executioner. Oh sure, everyone's excited about the conviction, but no one wanted to pull the lever, if you know what I mean. New Orleans was an up-and-coming city, and they just couldn't have riff-raff running around without consequences for their criminal actions. So they found Louis Congo. This was a very large slave that they offered him his freedom in 1725 in exchange for his executioner duties. He would be in charge of hangings, whippings, brandings, amputation, torture, and oh so much more. In addition to his freedom, he also received 1.7 acres of land on the outskirts of New Orleans and an ongoing supply of wine or other alcoholic beverages. His wife was allowed to live with him, but she was not granted her freedom. Plus, there were bonuses. He could earn extra cash... For additional punishment. For example, for every flogging he would earn 10 pounds, but he could be compensated 40 pounds for every time he burned someone alive or tortured the criminal by breaking him on the wheel. For those who may not be familiar with the wheel of torture, it was when a person was tied spread eagle to an oversized wagon wheel. The wheel was spun and the executioner would hit the moving target in various parts of the body. Arms, legs, thighs, stomach, chest, head. The object was to keep them alive for as long as possible until the desired result was achieved. Either confession or all the way to the death. Lewis had to be careful not to break the bones of the wrist or ankles so the criminal would not be able to escape his bindings. Louis Congo was not only the executioner for other slaves or Africans, but he was allowed to carry out his punishments on whites. This did not make him very popular. There are several documented incidents of where Congo was attacked and brutally beaten. The attacks were investigated and punishment did come to the attackers, and the attorney general of the time would say, quote, the life of said Congo would not be secure if such murderous thugs were tolerated, Right, they wouldn't want to have to find another executioner. Louis Congo served the city of New Orleans for 12 years as executioner, and it was noted that he would be taught and allowed to write his own name. He was given the name Louis for Louisiana and Congo for the place of his birth. I couldn't find any information of his death, But there are stories that he is seen about Jackson Square where most of the punishments were carried out in public display. Others have noted the feeling of being watched or even mists of tortured men who are trapped in the square not far from where the gallows took their life. And one other is a regular on the square. A priest can be seen walking back and forth praying for the mercy of the lost souls. The stories say that he appears and then moments later vanishes, but a unique smell of incense lingers. The restaurant on the corner, known as Muriel's, hasn't always been a public place for dining. Its roots came from its original owner, Pierre Pardes Jourdan. Now, this was a man who had some wealth, and it was very important to him to let others know about it. He would have guests over, often host dinner parties and would take his guests on a tour through his home, taking every opportunity to point out the more costly of items in his collection. The huge house was the home of his wife and two children, and of course himself. Even though he was a successful businessman known throughout the city, he also considered himself a bit of a gambler. Eventually, though, his luck, if he ever had any, was running out. With every game of cards, he was quickly running through his massive fortune. But one night, so sure that he was on the verge of winning, he put up his home as collateral on a single hand. He did not win and had to go home that evening and confess to his family what he had done and then explain to them that they had three days to pack their things and move out. By the time he reached his home, thoughts of shame and embarrassment swirled around his head, knowing that soon everyone would discover what he had done, and the ridicule and mocking that was sure to follow was something more than he could bear. So instead of talking to his wife, he walked past her, going upstairs to his private study, and hangs himself. The mocking and shame and ridicule would still come, but he left his wife and children to innocently suffer through it without him. Plus, he had stripped them of their home and any security they might have known. Fast forward through the years, and it turns out that the original owner of the house, Pierre Les Pardes Jordan, would have the last laugh. Literally. He got to stay in his house, and he makes sure everyone knows it. The waitstaff will tell you that shadowy figures are a common occurrence, and the smell of pipe smoke is often noticed in the non-smoking restaurant. And those would be his well-behaved days. Other times he would throw glasses across the room, or if he was feeling especially sassy, full bottles of wine. The owner of Muriel's decided that enough was enough, so they called on a spiritual advisor or a medium to negotiate with Pierre. So this medium goes up to the room where Pierre committed suicide, and then when the powwow was over, the medium explained that Pierre still thinks that this is his house, and by opening it up to guests and serving food and wine, it looks like a party that he was not invited to. To appease the original resident, Muriel's started setting a table with a linen cloth, complete with service for two, some bread and a glass of white wine, and a glass of red wine. The results... Rare are the evenings when the master of the house causes a fuss. See, it's all just about getting along. Bonus, some even request to sit at Pierre's table and the staff knows to always leave an extra chair. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaign to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money back guarantee and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. In 1792, the building at 909 Royal Street was used as an orphanage for boys. It was built and run by the Spanish government, mainly because so many adults were dying from various bouts of yellow fever. At some point, a fire broke out and killed five boys. The fire did not completely destroy the building, as some believed, but did enough damage that the orphanage had to be moved. From there, it became the U.S. Federal Courthouse. Its claim to fame was standing up to Andrew Jackson, finding him in contempt of court, finding him a $1,000. The citizens at the time and the higher court was incensed by the ruling because Jackson was still riding high from the Battle of New Orleans win. So much so that the judgment was overturned and it was demanded that Jackson be repaid with interest. Soon after, Jackson left the Crescent City and was well on his way to the Oval Office. In the meantime, the courthouse was demolished, and in 1890, a new hotel was built in that location, the Andrew Jackson Hotel. This 21-room intimate hotel is one of the more popular in New Orleans just because of its nearness to the heartbeat of the French Quarter, but it is also known for its ghosts. Even though it was a new building, the five boys who lost their life in the fire are known to be running around and making themselves known. They are heard giggling and talking in the courtyard, as well as running down hallways, whispers, turning on lights, and televisions. And then there's Armand, also a child, but instead of frolicking with the other boys, he stays in room 208 specifically. His story is a sad one, Somehow he fell or was thrown from the window of the second floor to his death and his spirit is still trapped in the room. He likes to turn the faucets on in the bathroom sink and bathtub, turn lights on and off, move personal belongings from one room to another, or if he's feeling really sassy, he's been known to slowly tug the sheets from the bed while you are sleeping, or has gone so far as to push the guest from the bed. And then let's not forget the housekeeper. It is believed that she is the third generation of staff that worked at the hotel and hasn't realized that her shift has been completed. She can be heard walking up and down and up and down the steps. She'll fluff pillows and sometimes rearrange furniture, liking the chairs better close to the window. She is often seen in the hotel lobby from time to time. And, One more Andrew Jackson hotel story that isn't told anymore because it's actually outdated. How can a ghost story from the 1890s be outdated? You'll see. It goes like this. There was a ghost, and I couldn't find out if it happened in room 208 or elsewhere, but guests would go home after their visit, and once they got back to their normal life and got their film developed, see, outdated, when they got their photos back, yes, the pictures you would actually hold in your hand, they would see a picture taken of themselves while they were sleeping from six feet above their bed. It seems that some of the most popular and best ghost stories have the perfect blend of history and folklore built into them. And if that's your idea of a good one to pass along the stillness of the night or across a crackling campfire then this one is for you. The main character in this story is both villain and patriot. Jean Lafitte was a known pirate, though he preferred the more elegant title of profiteer. He's a man who could get you what you wanted, or needed, for the right price. Let's set the stage in today's time at one of the oldest buildings in the French Quarter still being used as a bar today. Located on Bourbon Street, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop Bar sits simply and unassuming. From the outside it draws little attention, and if you weren't familiar with this story, you may not suspect that it's one of the most haunted. While this unassuming little shop had its humble beginnings as a blacksmith shop, it is believed that it was also the hub that Lafitte and his brother used to disperse goods that had been smuggled into the city. In the early 1800s, the British were attempting to take the coast of Louisiana and had approached Jean Lafitte to help them navigate the waterways. They offered him a great deal of money, and he took it, accepting the job. But his loyalties were American. He wanted the growing country to succeed and therefore betrayed the British by coming to the American side to tell them what was going down. A second payment, I'm sure, was paid, but he honored this agreement and actually does not get enough credit for the part he played in leading the Americans to a successful win in the Battle of New Orleans. In his dealings, Lafitte had connection in the most unique of places and implored his people to participate in holding off the British. The battle projects the age of the common man when it defeated the military enemy with a ragtag collection of unlikely patriots. Lafitte was able to pull together the Kentucky, Louisiana, and Tennessee militia, Choctaw Indian warriors, freed slaves, plus smugglers and pirates and other sailors to aid the last-minute military troops put in place quickly by then-Major General Andrew Jackson. It was a catastrophic defeat for the British, one in which Jackson took all the glory, carefully creating his resume for his eventual presidency. A soldier from Kentucky later wrote, When the smoke had cleared and we could obtain a fair view of the field, it looked at first glance like a sea of blood. It was not blood itself, but the red coats in which the British soldiers were dressed. The field was entirely covered in prostrate bodies. Lafitte was perfectly willing to let Jackson take the credit. Lafitte did his best work in the shadows anyway. But he was all in now. An American through and through, and his leadership reflected it. The story goes that he reined in the captains of his privateering ships and instructed that they were no longer allowed to attack and pillage American ships out on the ocean. The captains didn't appreciate the new restraints and let him know about it. Lafitte called a meeting at his blacksmith shop to discuss the matter, and when the captains mentioned mutiny, they were bound and gagged and thrown into the huge fire pit. That's just begging to have ghosts in your place. But apparently those ghosts are seen walking up and down Bourbon Street, or perhaps as shadows lurking in the carriageways. As for the building itself, many believe that it is a direct portal to satanic activity, as several have seen piercing red eyes staring out of the darkness. They will walk into your gaze before fading away to black. Others have heard whispers of a woman on a second floor, She has rarely made herself seen, but is hungry for company and is more likely to strike up a conversation with those she finds interesting. But the apparition that is most sought after is the full-bodied Jean Lafitte himself. He has been seen and thought to be just another customer sitting in the back of the bar surveying the room. He smokes a pipe and says nothing, but looks complete, meaning he's not just a mist and you can't see through him. You would never know he was a ghost unless you watched as he slowly disappeared before your eyes. He's been seen in various places inside the shop, never communicating with anyone, but the smell of his pipe tobacco lingers long after his apparition has faded. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougere Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seed, Bag of Bones, Toll Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit. In the 1970s, a three-story building built in 1848 at 603 Iberville Street was a hub of activity. The main street level became the Jemani Lounge Restaurant and Bar, the second floor held the Upstairs Lounge, and the third level was home to the only metropolitan community church. While today the Gemani is not only the home of the Bacon Bloody Mary and a thriving sports bar and lounge, it also holds the sad story of the handful of haunts that cannot move on. This is the location that 32 people perished on June 24, 1973 due to a fiery hate crime targeting the gay community. During this era, there weren't many places for the local gay community to congregate until the upstairs lounge gave them a welcome space and further, the owner allotted that the third floor to be used for the Metropolitan Community Church. This was the first gay church in the United States. It was said they kept to themselves and kept their activities low-key, knowing that the rest of the French Quarter did not openly embrace their lifestyle. But the upstairs lounge and the MCC gave them space to celebrate and worship. During the week and on Saturday nights, the upstairs lounge was boisterous with singing and dancing. There was a huge grand piano which was the center attraction as the patrons would gather around each night and sing before their farewells. On Sundays there was a special service during the day and then in the evening there was a beer bust. Here, just for a dollar, you could eat from the buffet and drink never-ending beer. On the Sunday of June 24th, around 125 people came for the Sunday service, and most of them ended up staying for the beer bust. This was a private event, so you had to be admitted into the building via a buzzer and a back entrance. Around 8 p.m., the buzzer for the door sounded, and most assumed that it was for a cab service. It was about time for the beer bust to start winding down so they buzzed the door to be unlocked to let whomever in. No one ever came in the door, and by the time someone opened the door to check, they discovered that the back wooden stairs were engulfed in flames. They were trapped. The floor-to-ceiling windows were covered in bars, and only a few knew of a second exit. One of the bartenders attempted to get people to follow him down the second secret passageway, but it was too late. The fire spread through the top floor, and by the time the fire department arrived, the fire had burned itself out. Thirty-two had perished, and another fifteen were treated with smoke inhalation and burns. Today, the second floor now houses the kitchen for the sports bar, and the third floor remains empty, partially damaged as a reminder to the tragic event. However, that's not the only thing that keeps the tragedy relevant. The Gemani is alive with the spirits that are believed to have stayed behind from the fires. Guests have heard tragic screams and cries for help. Glowing orbs are a regular occurrence and caught on film on numerous occasions. People have reported the feeling of being watched and the employees will swear to it that they have experienced their bottles and glasses getting moved around and in the quiet of the night as the bar is closing down, faint sounds of piano playing can be heard. The souls walking their last location of life are restless and are still seen and heard by many. Antonio Monteleone was an Italian immigrant that came to America and opened a cobbler shop in 1880. As his business grew, he had his eye on the commercial hotel which he saw every day from his shop. He eventually purchased it in 1886 and developed it into the luxury masterpiece that it is known for today. It is one of the last family-owned and operated hotels in New Orleans. The five generations of Monteleon have dedicated themselves to keeping Hotel Monteleon, as they call it, a sparkling jewel in the heart of the French Quarter. Side note. This is also only one of three hotels to receive the prestigious Literary Landmark designation, and it is now my goal, as an author myself, to stay at this hotel at some point in my life, perhaps in the Tennessee Williams Room, or maybe the Ernest Hemingway Suite? As for its haunted side, the Hotel Monte Leon is home to possibly dozens of tormented spirits that will regularly open and close locked doors, take over the elevators, and there is one place in the massive 600-room building that seems to be the most haunted. With children. Maurice Beger was staying at the hotel with his parents. One night while they were out at the opera, young Maurice took ill and even though the nanny did everything in her power, the boy died of convulsions and fever. His mother Josephine was heartbroken and didn't want to leave, sure that her son would return they would come back to the hotel year after year in hopes to connect with the child's spirit. On one visit, he finally did. On the 14th floor, in the same room where he passed, he returned to see his mother and assure her that he was alright and for her not to cry for him. And apparently, he's still there, usually spotted inside the room, but guests have heard small footsteps running down the hall of the 14th floor and a rare giggle or two. But that's not all. There have been several sightings of young children playing together in the hallways of alcoves also on the 14th floor. And even more creepy, more than one family with young children have mentioned that on their way up or down the elevator, it always manages to stop at level 14. Those that dare to step out of the determined elevator have been chilled by the cold air and the uncomfortable feeling that causes their hair to stand on end. The hotel happily embraces the stories of its historical hauntings and are more than accommodating to those who request a room on the 14th floor. They insist that in all the years of reports, the ghosts have never been malevolent and just want to play. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here from the Bag of Bones podcast. Since Damsel in Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. For a city as old as New Orleans, you can't help but expect some hauntings, but... If you have a crazy doctor in the neighborhood, that's a sure sign there's going to be some long-lost, unhappy patients. And for you, I've found just the guy. A little backstory. In 1804 in Louisiana, the governor decided that it was no longer acceptable for random people to go around creating their own medicines and made it a law that in order to be a practicing pharmacist, you had to complete a three-hour exam to show that you knew and understood what you were talking about. In 1816, Dr. Louis de Fillo, Jr. was the first to successfully pass the test and become a licensed pharmacist. In 1823, he opened his own shop. Fast forward to 1855, Dr. de Fillo decided to return to France and sold his business to his student, Dr. James Dupas. And here is where history gets messy. For all the advancement Dr. Dufilo made in modern medicine, Dupas' blatant disregard for the science set the area back decades. As if his mentor taught him nothing, Dupas went back to concocting his own recipes using any combination of questionable ingredients. But his reputation for how he treated his Pregnant clients, or rather, victims, is how he will be remembered in the medical history books. People began to notice that pregnant women would go in to see the doctor and never come back out. Reports have said that he prescribed questionable medicines for his patients that caused many to die, develop addictions, and cause deformities in prematurely delivered babies. But for the slave women, it was even worse. The stories claim that he conducted torturous experiments on pregnant slaves. No one can say how long this practice went on or how many died by his hand. They believe that he would dump the bodies out a back door to a waiting carriage and deposit them in the swamps or into the Mississippi River. His evil practices turned to sheer madness when he himself contracted syphilis and it destroyed his brain, eventually killing him in 1867. And yet, it's not the last that was seen of Dr. Dupas. He is still believed to be wandering around the pharmacy where he spent his time doing unthinkable to the helpless. The staff will tell you that he sets off the night alarms, rearranges bottles on the shelves, throws books, and even shows himself in full form walking down the stairs. And one final story. The ghost of St. Roque Cemetery is a dog. In 1868, the city was under a plague of yellow fever. The pastor of the Holy Trinity Church prayed regularly for the safety and healing of his patrons. He chose St. Roque to protect his people. Father Peter L. Thevis vowed to build a chapel to honor him if his congregation could be spared of this deadly plague. No one from his church died, and good to his word, Father Thevis began to build the St. Roch Chapel, which was completed a few years later, and the cemetery was included. When Father Thevis had passed, he was buried in the center of the chapel under the marble floor at the foot of the statue of St. Roch, where it is believed that the guardian saint has sent his beloved dog to watch over the grounds. St. Roque is considered the saint to call on when there is plague, disaster, or disease. The man, prior to his sainthood, was born in France in 1295. It was said that his prayers and touch could heal the sick during the plague. While in Rome, he himself was afflicted by the plague and was forced to retreat from the city and thought to die in the woods. Instead, a dog found him and would bring him bread and lick his wounds until he was healed. Roque would return to the city, dog at his side, and continue to heal the sick. He became the popular saint to call on for healing during plagues. Apparently the saint and his faithful companion continue to watch over Father Thevis's most faithful, buried in the cemetery of Saint Roque, as a shadowy canine is said to walk the grounds after dark. But if anyone tries to approach it, it disappears. There have also been sightings of a shadowy hooded figure as well. You know, I can hear you. What? You're not even going to mention the most famous haunted mansion and character from New Orleans? How can you do a New Orleans episode without mentioning Dauphine LaLaurie? Hold your sassy comments. Lucky for you, listener Amber Simon requested Ms. LaLaurie has her own episode. So the Crescent City hauntings don't stop here, friends. You'll just have to stay tuned. But for now we bring our second episode of the second season to a close as always if you are enjoying these stories of our dark past could you please take a quick moment to leave a five star rating and review i would love to be able to share these stories with others who would find them interesting entertaining and dare i say perhaps even educational if you have any comments or questions you can find me hanging around our facebook page or instagram at bag of bones podcast I love hearing from you. Next week, I am excited to bring you a request from listener Brian McHenry on a topic we have yet to delve into, World War II. I'm Elizabeth Bougerie. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougerie. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.